Back in April of 2023, we released an episode called The Soap Opera of Progesterone or something like that. The Progesterone Never-Ending Story whatever. It's the whole idea that this whole story of both I am and vaginal progesterone keeps changing. Well, the biggest change, of course, happened in April 2023 after the US FDA withdrew IM progesterone, 17-hydroxyprogesterone, aka McKenna, from circulation because it just didn't seem to work according to the latest uh, validation study, okay? And then what got clarified into that, of course, and I know you all know this, I'm just setting the stage, was that vaginal progesterone's efficacy could also be a little bit more in question than was previously thought, and it was restricted basically to a very high-risk group, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Now, in April of 2023, ACOG released its update, which was quickly followed by SMFM's update, and they are very similar, but not the same. And again, I've talked about this. We've done many episodes in the past. We're not going to hash out all that data, but I do want to talk about a new wrench in the machine (laughs) because a brand new commentary just came out in October 2023. That's right. That is this month because as point of reference, we're recording this on October the 17th, 2023. And two big leaders in the house of preterm birth have released a new data review Again, just to be clear, it's not an RCT. It is basically a form of expert commentary uh, saying that maybe we're a little premature in throwing vaginal progesterone under the bus. So all to say, we thought we had already figured out the whole role and the whole issue with vaginal progesterone. I am progesterone is already done, right? That's been put to bed. That's been buried. That's under the ground. I don't think that's coming back, at least not coming back in its current form. And and vaginal progesterone was limited to this higher risk population, aka short cervix, which we'll talk about in a minute. But this new commentary out of the AJOG MFM, so not the gray journal, but the pink journal from this month, is calling that into question. So I'm going to tell you all of this new controversy here in a minute uh, and why these authors make a great point because there's new data that wasn't around in April of 2023. Yeah, just six months ago, uh, new data is out specifically regarding the efficacy or the combined efficacy of cerclage and progesterone in certain patient populations. Just to say right now, those that have a short cervix, all right, which is directly in contrast to the current opinion by ACOG and SMFM. We're going to explain it all. Now, I'm not going to leave you with any confusion because at first we're going we're to get, get through some muddy water. That's what we're going to swim through, but we are going to get to the other side. And, and I'm going to tell you why I'm conflicted for three reasons, all right? Three reasons are, are, are really giving me some difficulty here with vaginal progesterone. And one of them has to do with my alma mater at UT Southwestern, okay? So it, there's a lot to process here. I'm going to get us to the other side, but we're going to have to walk through some muddy stuff here. But just when you think we've figured out vaginal progesterone. Well, well, well. How the turntables... That's right. Oh, how the tables have turned. Or as Michael Scott would say from The Office, how the turntables. And that's about the end of that. All right. So here's the thing. Uh, Just to be clear, this is not a new society guidance. This is a rebuttal to those two previous society guidances from April 2023. But 
it's one thing for somebody to have a rebuttal and gets it published. That's fine. That's still contributing to the literature. That's great. But it's who this rebuttal is coming from that really matters because these are big players, huge researchers in the MFM world on preterm birth. I mean, one of the de facto leaders, uh, of course, is Vincenzo um, Berghella. So we're going to talk about all of this and get to the commentary. But first, why don't we review April 2023's college and SMFM's stance that left it at bay, left it at peace there, and then spring forward six months? Well, here we are. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yes, Jiminy Cricket, that is correct. Here we go again. All right, we've got quite a bit of trek to cover here. So first, why don't we go back to April 2023? Now, isn't that amazing? Like, go back, like it's been like historic. Man, it's only been six months ago. So uh, speaking of about rebuttals, right? Do you remember that not long ago, I did an episode on how long is too long for the second stage, right? Something like that. Um, And I mentioned that in 2014, remember that the college published OB consensus number one, which was safe safe prevention of the primary C-section, uh, and that added an hour basically to the second stage, uh, and then even longer with an epidural, right? That's that's not what we're talking about here, but just follow this, this chain of thought here for a minute. All right, so that's 2014, safe prevention of primary C-section. Remember that I said that almost to the day, two years later, a big leader in MFM, which was Dr. Levino, uh, published the rebuttal in the Gray Journal going, hey, we're messing with something here. Uh, this is kind of dangerous, especially uh, specifically talking about second stage with his commentary called uh, second stage, how long is too long? All right. So that was a rebuttal about the timing, the maximum durations uh, of labor uh, two years after the college changed the labor rules. Okay, Uh, so my point is, look, that was two years, then came a published rebuttal from a big voice in MFM. Okay, well, now look how medicine moves quick, right? That's our tagline. Medicine moves fast. Look at that. So in the past, and that wasn't like a long time ago, that was 2014 to 2016, two years, right? Big rebuttal comes up. Now, take a look at what we're talking about here, vaginal progesterone, IM progesterone, FDA removes it, uh, practice advisory comes out from the college April 2023, uh, SMFM puts up its its progesterone update, again, April 2023, and now we're at six months for a big commentary rebuttal. Did y'all get that? See, medicine moves fast. Look at that. So what, in the past, you had a big rebuttal, it took two years uh, as that rebuttal got published against the labor uh, timings and durations back then. Now we're talking about six months for this kind of rebuttal. All to make the point, see how things really do move fast? I mean, we're talking about just the the accelerated pace of information and data. Guys, this isn't like last year. This is six months ago. Anyway, I just found that interesting. So let's go back to the practice advisory from ACOG. The title was Updated Clinical Guidance for the Use of Progesterone Supplementation for the Prevention of Recurrent Preterm Birth. 
uh, and it was very clear, right? So let me read you the, the, the main bullet points here, and then we'll do SMFMs just as a reminder because they're very similar but not the same, okay? They are not the same. So ACOG stated, number one, vaginal progesterone can be considered as a treatment option for patients with a history of preterm birth. That's the first qualifier. Second, they have a singleton pregnancy. That's the second qualifier. Third qualifier is, and they have that shortened cervix. So everybody gets that, right? Hey, progesterone, you got a history of preterm birth, your cervix is short, defined as less than or equal to 25 millimeters, and it's a singleton pregnancy, knock yourself out, seems to work. But then they go on to say, vaginal progesterone has not been proven effective in the absence of a shortened cervix and should not be considered as an alternative to 17-hydroxyprogesterone. So in other words, if their cervix is above 2.5 centimeters, 25 millimeters, then there's no data that that does anything. And basically, it doesn't need to be considered, right? The other advisory, of course, uh, the other statements in this advisory were that IM progesterone, of course, is not to be recommended, but it clearly left the door open for vaginal progesterone, specifically when those three criteria are met. History of preterm birth, singleton gestation, short cervix. Now let's flip forward and go like literally like two days later that SMFM gave its statement, quote, response to the Food and Drug Administration's withdrawal of 17-hydroxyprogesterone caprate, end quote. This was their, you know, advisory kind of uh, statement. And they recommended something very, very similar, but it was not the same. So let's review that now. In the SMFM bulletin, it absolutely still agrees with history of preterm birth, singleton pregnancy, short cervix, again, less than or equal to 25 millimeters, vaginal progesterone is legit. But unlike the college that said there is no data for those with a greater cervical length than that, SMFM was a little softer in its stance because SMFM stated that shared decision-making could be done when discussing vaginal progesterone as a treatment option for prevention of recurrent preterm birth either without knowledge of a cervical length, in other words, hey, let's just give it to you right off the bat, we don't even know what your cervix is, or in those with a cervical length greater than 25, all right? So how are these similar? Both agree. History of preterm birth, short cervix, singleton, give vaginal progesterone. Where they diverge is ACOG says greater than 25 millimeters, really there's no data. SMFM says, hey, you know, share decision-making. And in our uh, modage here on our podcast family, remember if it can't uh, hurt, which here doesn't seem to hurt and it can only help, then possibly give it. So that's where SMFM is. So SMFM is a little bit softer in those either with no cervical length or in those with a cervical length greater than 25 as shared decision-making. But here's where it gets even more, a little bit more confusing, Okay. Because SMFM goes on to say that, look, the data we used to think cerclage really was legit, especially with a history of preterm birth and short cervix. ACOG stood by that as well. But if you really take a look at the data, um, really, we can't really tell which one's better than the other. So in a history of preterm birth with a cervix under 25, then either cerclage or progesterone can be chosen, but there was no real clear benefit of one over the other, okay? So let me read you straight from the SMFM statement back in April, quote, based on the currently available evidence, it's reasonable to offer either cerclage or vaginal progesterone to patients with a history of preterm birth who are diagnosed with that short cervix before 24 weeks, end quote. And they go on to say, hey, and if you give a cerclage, 
the benefit of adding additional vaginal progesterone is unknown. So we don't know if, if two is better than one. You can kind of pick one and then call that a day, all right? This is one of the things that has now changed. Remember, this was in April of uh, 2023, but released the month after that as ahead of print in May 2023 came a new systematic review about combination therapy of cerclage and progesterone. And I'll talk about that in just a minute, all right? That officially came into print, just FYI, that just went into print August. Uh, so two months ago, again, in the AJOG MFM in the pink journal, all right? So you see how things move fast. So they say, hey, uh, previous history, and they have uh, short cervix under 25. You can do either progesterone or cerclage, but both together, we don't know if it helps. And then the next month after that, after that was released, came a systematic review that showed, hey, it possibly could. Not that it absolutely does, but it possibly could be synergistic, and I will cover that in a minute. So all we've done right now is just go back and reviewed the ACOG and SMFM stances from April. That's it, all right? Now that we've done that... Let's get into this new commentary that came out this month, October 2023. It lets you know their stances. Um, but before I get into that, I'm right at that door about to enter that threshold here, right? Here's why there really should be a difference. We cannot group all progesterone together. That progesterone carte blanche just does not work for preterm birth, especially when you're talking about 17-hydroxyprogesterone compared to vaginal progesterone. They are apples and oranges, all right? So that's the first thing. If you ever asked on the oral boards, do progesterone prevent preterm birth? Your first response should be, well, I'm sorry, before I answer that, are you talking about vaginal progesterones, which are traditionally uh, micronized progesterone as a natural uh, analog? Or are we talking about the synthetic 17-hydroxyprogesterone because they really do have very different mechanisms of action here? So again, do not group all progesterones together. Progesterones don't prevent preterm birth. No, it seems that 17-hydroxyprogesterone probably doesn't prevent preterm birth. So let me just get into that very quickly here, the differences uh, in the synthetic form of the analog and the more natural micronized form, which is typically done as a bioidentical vaginal form, all right? And this is also something that is covered in this expert review by Vincenzo Berghella, uh, and Madi Gullerson. Those are the two big leads. Now, there's there's four total authors, but I respect, and I respect all of these authors, but I have most familiarity with Vincenzo Berriella, Madi Gullerson, uh, and, and they're just, man, they're just brilliant. Vincenzo Berriella is one of the founders of, of the AJ, AJOG MFM journal, and just remarkable out of, out of Philly. Uh, and so let me just get into that briefly before we get into the details of this commentary. Not only is their composition different, but how they work in the body, because one is obviously more systemic, so it's got to go through first pass. The other is more direct because it goes through first vaginal pass with vaginal administration. Not only is there, there true differences in how they're made in their structure, but obviously, again, in, in how they work at the uterine level, all right? So they're different structurally and they're different uh, biochemically or bioactively, 17-hydroxyprogesterone is a synthetic progestin, whereas vaginal progesterone typically are the bioidentical forms, even though there's a variety of different dosages that have been published. And that's one of Vincenzo Berghella's uh, uh, arguments here is that 
again, we're apples and oranges. We're not we're not standardizing the dose, and we'll get into that in a minute. But that's one of the rebuttals, FYI, as an early spoiler that no wonder vaginal progesterone didn't seem to work in those trials quoted because they used a suboptimal dose, like ninety milligrams, instead of the traditional two hundred milligrams. Ah, I see that. So again, room for discussion. And I'm going to give you at the end, like I told you, I'm going to walk through this. We're still swimming in the water here, the little kind of murky, murky water, but we're going to land on the other side in a minute. All right. The other thing is that 17-hydroxyprogesterone does have to go systemically, which goes through first hepatic pass, whereas vaginal progesterone uh, goes through a first uterine pass, which is great. And there are very well published in vivo and in vitro differences between the two. Right, so let's go over these rapid fire because I love how Vincenzo Berghella and, and Gullerson put this together in, in their review. It's very nice as a, a bullet point by bullet point uh, review of the difference of these two compounds. Number one, natural progesterone but not 17-hydroxyprogesterone actually has the ability to inhibit myometrial contractility. How about that? Two, natural progesterone, a.k.a. vaginal progesterone, inhibits cervical remodeling and shortening, but 17-OHP, not so much. Third, vaginal progesterone and not 17-OHP reduces immune activation and inflammation in both the decidua and the cervix. That's very good. And then the fourth point is that vaginal progesterone, but not 17-OHP, seems to inhibit the inflammatory uh, uh, fetal membrane a weakening that happens as a trigger point for preterm birth. So all to say that they have different effects on both the remodeling and the adapt, uh, adaptability of both the cervix and the decidual uh, chorioamniotic membrane uh, layer uh, that differs between the two, not just in vivo, but in vitro. The take-home message is they are different compounds, therefore they have different biological effects. I can't leave this mechanism of action discussion without quoting something here that that really is um, forward thinking. And we've talked about this in the past with low-dose aspirin um, because it's just a couple of sentences here. But this is something that really has not been pursued very well, but it's in the process right now with several trials, right? And I've talked about this in other episodes. And that's that one of the mechanisms of vaginal progesterone that's likely is that it also has uh, uh, this ability to affect pro-inflammatory substances and help with platelet activation and release of 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 uh, pro-inflammatory substances, all right? So listen to this. This is not my quote. This is exactly from this commentary from October in AJOG MFM. Quote, these vascular pathways, talking about the mechanism of action of vaginal progesterone, may explain both the increased risk of spontaneous preterm birth in those with previous preterm preeclampsia and the benefit of low-dose aspirin in prevention of spontaneous preterm birth and recurrent preterm birth, end quote. Did y'all get that? So right there, they threw a little nod. They, they tipped their hat like, thank you, low-dose aspirin, that there is some data here, guys. And we talked about this in the past, that I'm a big believer in low-dose aspirin. I think it should be in everybody's drinking water. Uh, I mean, I'm, come on, don't write me ugly things. You know what I mean? I mean, it's very low risk unless you've got a severe GI bleed, severe GI sensitivity, or 
aspirin-induced uh, asthma, I mean, in pregnancy, this really, I'm in the camp that I think it should be universal. Um, because outside of the preeclampsia issue is this, is this less clear but seems to be beneficial trend towards prevention of preterm birth. So in this commentary, they do give that nod, guys. Again, and I'm not advocating this because it's not a, a, an official society stance. I'm saying something to consider. All right. So if you ever asked, well, tell me about low dose aspirin in pregnancy. Yes, yada, yada. Right now we get it's the preeclampsia deal. However, there is some data that it potentially could help with preterm birth. And remember, ACOG is currently looking at the OB consensus uh, for low dose aspirin in pregnancy. Can't discuss any of that now because it's all confidential. Just know something is on the horizon. All right, I think we've set the stage enough, haven't we? My goodness. Uh, so we talked about ACOG, SMFM, mechanism of action, why progesterone seems to not work, why vaginal progesterone may be legit. But then here's the, the bottom line then that you should be thinking, well, wait a minute. Well, what, ACOG and SMFM got it wrong? I mean, is, is that what they're saying here? Uh, and, and the short answer is no, but yes. Do you like that? And I, I'm, I'm very, look, guys, I love my position with the ACOG. I'm very ACOG friendly. And of course, equal love to SMFM. Thankful for what they do. Uh, great friends in leadership through SMFM. Uh, to his two great organizations. But you see, even with their uh, uh, comments and statements after FDA's withdrawal of Makina, not exactly the same. All right. But this commentary is an exact proof of something that we mentioned also in the vitamin D episode, which is how can somebody take a look at one set of data? and come up with two different interpretations. Remember, somebody looks at the data and goes, ah, clearly that's glass half empty. And then somebody else looked at the exact same data and says, clearly that's half full. Well, then they're both right, all right? It depends on how you take or what angle you're looking at the data and how you analyze who was uh, excluded from those studies that were quoted and then who was not, all right? And and remember, that's related to the vitamin D and how back in 2011 when ACOG released that universal screening recommendation that no, you should not screen universally, but in those in high risk, yes. Someone took that to read you shouldn't look at it at all. Others took it that you should do it to everybody. And when actually the college said both. Did y'all get that? That was in the vitamin D episode, I don't know, maybe two or three episodes ago. But it's the exact same thing here. This is an exact idea here of looking at one set of data and seeing the glass half full while others may see it half empty. It's not new data, guys. It's the exact same data, but it's just looking at who was excluded in the original trials that went into those meta-analyses. If you include that back in, you're like, ah, there's some differences here. So that's the first thing. And I don't want to get too much in the data. I just want to give you that big idea is that according to uh, Vincenzo Vergela uh, et al., that the reason that they did not show that big of, a, of an efficacy in vaginal progesterone, the first thing was in, in how they looked at the data. Okay, that's pretty clear. Second is that the, if, you take, if you wait for progesterone to, to be qualified for progesterone, if you wait for that criteria to have a cervical length of 25, the short of it is that their rebuttal here is, well, the process has already started remodeling. Y'all get that. So they're saying, well, of course it didn't really help uh, that much because you've already uh, got into a short cervix, all right? So now you're at extremely high risk when you should try to prevent them so they don't get into the high risk position outside of history alone. Does that make sense? In other words, um, hey, rather than just saying vaginal progesterone doesn't work unless you're 25 millimeters, why don't we just open it up and say if you have that history 
uh, because we know that vaginal progesterone can prevent cervical remodeling, don't punish them by getting having them wait until 25 millimeter mark, all right? So it's the exact same, same uh, trial of data. It's the data by Romero, by Condia uh, Agudelo, the same amount of data that's used, but they're looking at it in a different way. So I'm going to be very clear. The first argument here is that it's how they cut the data to come up with that conclusion, those practice advisories in the statement from SMFM. Second is that if you actually offer progesterone to everybody with a history of preterm birth, rather than waiting for their cervix to remodel at 25, you're going to have a much bigger yield. Okay, so that is their take home point is that there is value for vaginal progesterone, regardless of cervical length. That's their take home based on history alone, like we always used to do it. And then if they have a cervical length of 25 or less, continue the vaginal progesterone, but now add cerclage. Okay, now let me touch on the cerclage issue now because that opens up the door to this new publication, this new systematic review comparing the two together. Okay, so everybody clear? So the big the rebuttal here from Vincenzo Briella, one is it's how they took a look at the data, how they excluded things for the meta-analysis and put things together. Uh, and then second is if you actually can give it to everybody with a history of preterm birth like we used to without waiting for them to get to 25 millimeters, you could potentially have bigger yield and bigger efficacy. I'm going to review this brand new publication about the combined role of a potential combined role of cerclage and vaginal progesterone in those with a short cervix and a previous history of preterm birth. But but here's the main criticism. Okay, we already discussed is how you look at the data, how you cut the pie. We discussed why don't you just give to everybody waiting for the, instead of waiting for them to remodel. But here's the biggest beef by um, Bergela et al. Uh, on these trials. If you take a look at the studies that were used, most of them started vaginal progesterone at 18 weeks or more, up to 22, right? But the stance here is just like the aspirin issue, right? The earlier you start aspirin for preeclampsia prevention, the better, because you want to stop the dominoes from falling uh, instead of of catching them kind of uh, mid uh, pile uh, collapse, all right? So their biggest beef with the studies that were looked at is, man, well, they started it too late. Because if you take a look at the data, when you actually stratify for when they started it, here's what they say, quote, prophylactic vaginal progesterone starting at 16 weeks and zero days should be offered to patients with singletons and previous singleton spontaneous preterm birth, regardless of cervical length, and continued along with placement of cerclage if a transvaginal ultrasound length is less than or equal to 25 millimeters at less than 24 weeks, end quote. So you get that. The biggest beef here is outside of, well, it's how they look at the data. Um, You're punishing patients basically by making them wait to get to 25. Uh, Why not prevent them from having cervical remodeling to begin with? And then the last thing is the trials that were used uh, by the college and SMFM started progesterone when the remodeling has already happened. So so what are, what are these new commentaries, the commentators advocating for? Just to be clear, number one, starting earlier at 16 weeks. Number two, starting regardless of cervical length. And number three is after uh, in patients with a history of preterm birth on vaginal progesterone who find a cervix, who then have a cervical length less than 25, then adding cerclage. In other words, going back to the original. So this whole stance is nothing new. This is what we did before the April 2023 practice advisories and commentary from the college, from SMFM. It's nothing new, guys. They're just saying, let's go back. Progesterone for everybody with a history. All you guys say is got a history of preterm birth. They give vaginal progesterone. Yep, keep checking that cervical length. And if it's under 25, add cerclage and keep with the progesterone. 
totally different than what ACOG and SMFM state. Now, remember, as I already stated, and I want to be very clear, this is not a new guidance. These are the thoughts based on these four experts, I mean, big experts in the field, right? So right now, ACOG and SMFM have not changed what they're saying. All to make the point, look, there's room for discussion, guys. It's okay. And ACOG does, I mean, SMFM does kind of agree with this a little bit with the shared decision-making over 25 millimeters, where they where they diverge is is that SMFM, remember, says pick one or the other under 25 millimeters, either cerclage or progesterone, but the data doesn't seem to be there. And the reason they said that is because this new study was not out yet. Okay, very quickly, for sake of time, why don't we just cover this new publication uh, that came out uh, officially in print August 2023, although it went out as an EPUB the month after these practice advisories and statements from SMFM came out. All right, so this is in the gray journal. I'm sorry, the, the pink journal. It's in AJOG MFM. It's in the pink journal, uh, officially in print August 2023. And the title is Combined Vaginal Progesterone and Cervical Cerclage in the Prevention of Preterm Birth. This is a systematic review and meta-analysis, and you know me, I, I like my systematic reviews and meta-analyses if the data that goes into it are, are, are solid and uh, incredible, okay? Well, the short of it is they, they did the systematic review and they accepted uh, randomized trials and pseudo-randomized trials, including even non-randomized experimental controls trials and cohort studies to, be, to, to, to throw everybody in there so to not miss anybody. That's perfectly fine to do. Now, this new publication in the Pink Journal, after they do the data analysis, yada, yada, the short of it is, for sake of time, the conclusion was combined treatment of cervical cerclage and vaginal progesterone. Remember, we're talking about together. But listen to the words. Here's how they soften the finding. Could potentially, that's the two words, guys, could potentially result in greater reduction in preterm birth than either single therapy alone, end quote. So it's not a de facto but you see how, once again, things are muddy. Oh, how the turntables. Do y'all get that? <laughs> I love that. Oh, how the turn. I'm a big fan of The Office, a.k.a. Me and my daughter, we used to do that uh, before she went to college. We just watch, I mean, just binge hours of The Office like we hadn't seen it ever before. And we'd seen each episode like 30 times. And it gets better and better every time. So so again, this this review, this systematic review meta-analysis, which came out after the ex-nay of, of pick one or the other, don't do both together, says, yeah, it possibly could. So it, it's not even that strong of an evidence. But again, look how things are up for discussion. So if you're asked, does vaginal progesterone add any benefit to cerclage in those with a history of preterm birth and a short cervix defined as under 25? The answer is, yeah, it might could, possibly. It doesn't seem to hurt, but the data is just not strong enough there. And these authors in this systematic review make that very clear by stating, quote, further well-conducted and adequately powered randomized trials are needed to assess these promising findings, end quote. So I want to be very clear, it is not de facto, but it is interesting. Well, my goodness, something to consider, right? So now that we're getting towards the end, let me give you the quick and dirty why I'm very conflicted here, all right? And I mentioned before, one of them, one of the reasons has to do with uh, my old alma mater, UT Southwestern. Uh, so let's just get to that right away. Number one, my first reason I'm conflicted uh, is, again, I'm very ACOG, SMFM friendly. I respect their viewpoints and their stance is their stance. 
Um, now, don't worry. I'm going to give you the, the clinical application. Again, we're still in swimming in the muddy water. I'm going to get us to, to solid ground here in a minute. So my first confliction is, man, ACOG and some FMs, you know, ACOG doesn't say, says it's just don't do it over 25 millimeters, only do it to those with a history of preterm birth, singletons, and those with a short cervix. SMFM says share decision-making over 25 millimeters and those with a history alone, um, and don't do cerclage and progesterone together because the data is not there. And then this new commentary says, give it to everybody, <laughs> uh, and then still do cervical lanes. And if it's under 25, keep progesterone, but add cerclage together kind of right similar but different uh which just makes the point again it's okay to agree to disagree so number one that's why i'm conflicted because i have great respect for all three of these organizations slash units acog smfm and these authors in this commentary equal respect to all of them a little conflicted all right the second thing is why i'm very conflicted is is research from ut southwestern that came out just one of the last pieces of the data that came out before uh, the whole Makina thing uh, that, that changed, all right? And, and that was that uh, in the study specifically looking at vaginal progesterone, okay, we're not talking about 17-hydroxyprogesterone, but authors in UT Southwestern, this was Nelson et al. who published through JAMA Open Network, uh, this was in, in just in 2022, vaginal progesterone did not seem to help. Um, you're like, oh, well, that sucks. Yeah, not only that, but in those who took vaginal progesterone, the rate of preterm birth under 35 weeks was 24%. Compared to those in the control, it was 16.8%. Now, again, not saying that that was causative, that it made them deliver early, but it, it went to the point that it, it didn't seem to, to do anything. Yes, that was David Nelson and Lafferty et al. published in JAMA Network Open, and the title is Association of Vaginal Progesterone Treatment with Prevention of Recurrent Preterm Birth. And the short of it is, yeah, vaginal progesterone did, did not seem to help, right? So again, that's why I'm conflicted. So my first thing is everybody that we've just quoted has a great point, uh, knows what they're talking about, but they're not in the same street. Second is my old alma mater, just 2022, showed vaginal progesterone, didn't seem to work. Well, how, how do you figure that? Again, it possibly could be with how, when they initiated the medication. And we, again, I don't want to get into all that, but just I'm just tr trying to give that point in here that it's okay to not find the same thing every time. That's why medicine is both a science and an art. And my third reason why I'm conflicted is, is probably the easiest to see, and that has to do with the dose of vaginal progesterone in, in all of these studies, right? And that is something that these commentators in this commentary uh, does bring up as well. Some used 100 milligrams, some used 90 milligrams, but most of the efficacy seems to be at 200 milligrams of micronized progesterone daily starting at 16 weeks. So they were subtherapeutic. So that's my biggest issue here is why, why did they include such a low dose, 90%, I'm sorry, 90 milligrams uh, like crinone, which is typically great for fertility and for stabilization of the endometrium. That is periconception and in the first trimester, not for preterm birth, is that it probably is a dose response issue. And that's why I'm very conflicted because that wasn't addressed in either ACOG's bulletin or SMFM uh, that potentially there's this benefit for a dose response to vaginal progesterone, right? So if you're asking, well, what should people do? Well, even though there's a variety of vaginal protocols, uh, 200 milligrams daily starting at 16 weeks seems to have the best chance for efficacy uh, across cervical lanes. All right, now that we're at the end, we've covered ACOG, SMFM, this new commentary. We've covered the differences between 7-androxyprogesterone and vaginal progesterone and which dose seems to be the best. Now let's get 
to the final destination, which is out of the murky water onto dry ground. And here's my take on it. In typical adage form, if it can only help and it can't hurt, why not offer this to patients with a history of preterm birth? Now, remember, we're not talking about IM progesterone. That's gone. We're talking about vaginal progesterone in the right dose, 200 milligrams, started at the right time, which is 16 weeks, and then starting cervical lengths at 18 weeks and above. Now, I, I don't know. I'm very conflicted on the data. I don't think that the data is strong enough to say that cerclage adds benefit under 25 millimeters. Even the systematic review that came out in August 2023 says, yeah, it might could, uh, but we need more data. So I, I, I'm not in favor of, of doing both. I'm, I'm, I'm in the camp of just sticking with vaginal progesterone. And if it's under, if it's really short, like under uh, uh, 20 millimeters, then consider cerclage before you get to no cervix at all uh, with a shared decision-making, knowing, of course, that there's a risk of inadvertent uh, rupture of the bag and or bleeding. Uh, and that's only up to 24 weeks. So my take on it is, yes, I am in the camp that it can only help and it cannot hurt. So if you have a history of preterm birth, I agree with Dr. Vincenzo Berriella at all that it should probably be offered regardless of cervical length. Don't wait for them to get to 25 millimeters, although that's not currently the stance, right? Share decision-making. And then if they're on vaginal progesterone and get a cervix under 25 millimeters with a previous history, then it's really not clear at all. Uh, you know, you can offer them cerclage, so the data is not 100%. Uh, and you can do one or the other or both. But again, we don't have enough data uh, to say what to do there. Um, and, and, you know, cerclage was, I was, everyone was so cerclage friendly, even for recurrent, uh, you know, what seemed to be incompetent cervix, we now, we now know even that data is, is a little weak as well. So it's very clear and it's very easy when cervical length is above 25, just give it, it can't hurt under 25, keep with vaginal progesterone. And then cerclage is the unknown. Maybe it seems that it could help, but that's not universal. And the last thing I want to say is before we leave is for those who are listening outside of the U.S., remember, this is the U.S. stance, and this is not universal, guys. So for all of us here in the States, this is not what everybody else believes because the Society of Obstetrics and Gynecology Canada says, hey, if you've got a singleton with a previous preterm birth history, just give them progesterone. Don't even worry about cervical lengths. Just give them progesterone. And the Royal College uh, says, hey, so very similar. If you've got a singleton previous preterm birth, then you can consider. So it doesn't recommend like Canada, but it's a you may consider. And, and so people, different countries have their different takes on it. Right now, ACOG says singleton previous preterm birth, short cervix under 25, then consider. Remember, it's not even recommend. It's just consider. And then if it's over uh, 25 millimeters, it's not recommended. SMFM says uh, cervix greater than 25 is shared decision-making. But Canada does recommend it just based on history alone, regardless of cervical length. And the Royal College says regardless of cervical length, you can consider it. Remember, those words mean something. Recommend and consider. Uh, th those are loaded words. So you see how even where you live in parts of the globe – uh, you have your own take. So if you're listening to us in Canada, as I know that we've got Canadians who listen, follow your national guidance. For those in the UK, we've got great friends in Leeds um, and, and a lot of friends in the UK. Follow your recommendation, which is based on history, to consider use regardless of cervical length uh, measurement. So just to make it even more muddy, not all countries in all parts of the world agree. I'm giving you the U.S. stance and SMFM stance as it stands as of October 17th, 2023.
Well, I hope I really did get us out of the murky water and land somewhere solid. I, I think I did. <laughs> but that's the idea. It's, guys, it's for us to just think about it. Take a look at it. It's okay to disagree as long as we're not hurting someone. So go back to the adage. Can this potentially help? Yes, it can potentially help. Can it hurt? It doesn't seem to. So what is the harm with giving it uh, just based on history alone like we used to? That's my camp, and I'll leave it at your doorstep there. This is a rapidly changing deal, guys. I mean, preterm birth is a big issue here, and I'm thankful for this commentary by these thought leaders from the Pink Journal, and I know that this is not the end of the progesterone saga. All right, podcast family, I hope you found that helpful. As always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community, and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.